0: I want you to imagine if I was standing up here for the next 10 minutes or so in just complete silence looking at you. Like how awkward would that be? I saw a few of you writhing in your seats. That was like 10 seconds. Imagine 10 minutes of that. Well, try to be friends with someone who never speaks. Part of the way that God has designed us as humans is that we get to know one another by what? By the words that we speak. You can't get to know someone unless they disclose themselves through their words. And God's word is no different. The character of God is no different. God has seen fit in his wisdom and in his kindness to disclose himself through his words. That is, if you think about your friendships, if you think about your relationships with people, the people that you're closest with are those that are most vulnerable in their disclosure of themselves to you. They're the ones that go beyond the surface level and speak words that help you to get to know them. They speak words that help you to understand more of their character, more of their personality, more of what makes them tick. I think the crux, though, of the issue and of knowing God is whether or not you trust this God and, by consequence, the words that he speaks. This evening, we're going to consider that question, the trustworthiness of the, of the Bible. Can we really trust the Bible? But I think, inevitably, this question is also wrapped up in a larger question about the trustworthiness Of God Himself. We're going to get to some logical and historical and factual evidence for believing God's Word is trustworthy here in a minute, as you can probably see on your handout. But before we do, I want to argue that this faith in God, it's not some sort of like self sufficient, I've worked myself up and now I'm jumping into the abyss of this unknown faith. Now, I want to convince you that faith is, to steal some words from Carl Truman, a conscious, that is a willing, a volitional human disposition that has a specific object and a specific content that is God's word. Faith is always placed by the individual in God's word, in the word that God has spoken to humanity. Think about Abram. That herdsman in Genesis, we considered this story a couple of weeks ago, if you were with us, when we looked at the main message of the Bible, but it was God's word that Abram believed in Genesis 12. We see here that God speaks to Abraham, or excuse me, Abram at this point, and he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. So here we have Abram being told by God. God is disclosing himself to him and saying that, hey, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make a people come from you, but you need to go to this land. Now we wonder, okay, what what kind of tangible evidence or what would lead Abram to believe this promise from the Lord? Was there any logical reason that Abram should believe this word from God? No, there wasn't. There was no earthly empirical evidence that Abram should have believed this. After all, why would he leave a familiar land for a land that God says is somewhere out there in the unknown? Why would Abram leave his family and to go off with his wife who was barren in hopes of a promise that from him would come even more families? In fact, there's evidence to the contrary that Abram should have just disregarded God. God. And so again here we see that Abram goes, as it says in verse 4, Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now was this Abram again just doing a kind of blind leap of faith? I think that's what many skeptics and others might say whenever they talk about Christians trusting the Bible. They simply say that, oh yeah, it's just kind of a, a blind faith. And even a lot of Christians respond that, yeah, to believe the Bible you just have to have faith. Which is certainly true, but is there more to it? Is there an object to that faith? I think in seeing this story from Abram, we can trust that there is more to it. For the text, even in Genesis, tells us a bigger story. Faith is ultimately not obedience to a command, but trust in a promise, and thus trust in the one who makes the promise. Faith is ultimately not obedience to a command, but trust in a promise, and thus trust in the one who makes the promise. For God even reaffirms his promise there in Genesis 13, verses 4 to 7. If you look there, he reaffirms that promise to Abram. And then in Genesis 15, he appears to Abram in a vision and reveals himself as the one who is Abram's shield, the one through whom he will receive a great reward. You see, God in his kindness is reminding Abram that he is worthy of to be trusted. In this instance, we can be sure that faith is founded on the fact that Abram trusts the promise of God precisely because he regards God, the one making the promise, as trustworthy. Again, so ultimately, this this, this faith, this hope, this trust is not just a blind faith, but it's a confidence in the one who is behind that promise. I think if we lose this perspective, the reason I want to open up this way and frame the conversation in this way is that if we get into, if we get away from this perspective, we kind of just set ourselves loose on some sort of like empirical goose chase, trying to trace down as much evidence of historical facts and evidential data and all of these other sorts of things so that we can just dump them at the feet of someone who's skeptical and to assume that, oh, all they needed were these facts. And then all of a sudden, now they're convinced. But it's actually the God behind those promises and behind that word that is going to be the one that causes those beliefs. So I wonder that if you're not a Christian here or maybe you're just not religious or maybe you just don't even know necessarily what you think, I truly am glad that you're here. As a Christian, as a self-professed Christian, I truly do believe that the Bible is a marvelous book, a book that brings much life and joy and peace So I hope that you'll listen closely and consider the claims that we make tonight of the trustworthiness of God's Word. If you gain anything this evening, I hope it's that you don't believe that Christians just believe the Bible for arbitrary reasons or that if you believe the Bible that you, for some some reason, don't have good reasons to trust the Bible. I just ask that you seriously consider these ideas. And if you're already a Christian here, which... I presume is the majority of you, which even as I look around the room, I know is the majority of you. I hope that you can gain more confidence about why you believe the Bible to be trustworthy and that as you go from this place and inevitably you encounter people who don't believe that the Bible is trustworthy or that this is just some sort of like made up book by some guy in the sky, that you feel better equipped in how to respond to those claims To begin, let's ask the question. What is the Bible and how can we know that it is really from God? Well, the Bible is a collection of writings that Christians consider uniquely inspired and authoritative. Anybody know what those words mean, inspired? Anybody want to take a stab at that one? What does it mean that the Bible is inspired by God? That's right. God is ultimately behind the words of Scripture. He is the author of Scripture, and yet he has ordained that the means for carrying that out is through the use of human authors. As 2 Peter one twenty one says, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What about that word authoritative? What does it mean that God's word is authoritative? He's commanding us, that's right. What else? Woof. Maybe that it, it is like the precedent, it's, it is the standard. It is the standard. Yeah, what's up, Nick? I think similar, it's like there's an objective framework. Like Yep a definitive, like, word and doctrine. That's exactly right. So when Christians say that the Bible is authoritative, that means that it is the final authority for all matters in life and in the doctrines that we believe. It isn't, oh, my reason in addition to the authority of Scripture. It isn't my feelings in addition to the authority of Scripture. It is the authority that God has, again, inspired through human authors to put before us as numbers 2319 says god is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind god is not like us does he speak and not act does he promise and not fulfill or you've probably heard second timothy 316 which says that all scripture is breathed out by god and is profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man and woman of god may be complete Equipped for every good work. And what is the purpose of this inspired and authoritative book? What's the Christian claim for the purpose of this book? Guide. Guide us where? What's the ultimate purpose? I should have phrased it that way. Where is it guiding us? That's right, towards Christ. Second Timothy 3.15, just a few verses prior to that, for Scripture is breathed out by God. Second Timothy 3.15 says that it is written for the purpose of making us wise for salvation. Now, that's an interesting phrase, wise for salvation. But it's an understanding, even as we talked a few weeks ago, that the whole narrative of Scripture is ultimately, like, it's, it's working toward this culmination in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ. And so just as Anna Karen said, that God's word, the, the purpose of that word is ultimately to drive us to the person of Jesus. So that's what God's word is, but how can we know that this word, the Bible, is truly from God? How can we be sure that we're hearing God's voice and we're not just believing some sort of, like, mystical or existential comfort. Well, to frame the rest of our time, I want us to consider those four different categories that you see there on your handout that lead us to believe that we are in fact hearing the trustworthy voice of God in his word. These categories which you see on your handout are logical, historical, evidential, and spiritual. At the end of each of these points, I'm going to apply the things we talk about in that to the Gospels, which are a smaller subset of the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because the Gospels are some of the most disputed or some of the books that are most kind of um, criticized with this question, can we really trust the Bible? Because ultimately, if you get the Gospels, if you can prove that the Gospels are untrustworthy, well, then the rest of the Bible doesn't matter because ultimately the Gospels testify to Jesus. And if we can make sure that... Jesus and the testimony of him in these Gospels is false, then the rest of the Bible doesn't really have much bearing. So that's why I'm going to apply it to the Gospels toward the end. So let's start with those logical reasons for believing God's word is trustworthy. You know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, God is a personal God and he has made humans to be personal beings, which means then that he would communicate to these personal beings through speaking to us in a language that we can both understand and comprehend. Again, in our first week, we talked about how God has not left himself without what? Witness. God has not left himself without witness. And he talks about this in the, in the uh, context. Paul is talking about that in the context of nature. That is kind of a, a general revelation of God. We can look at the creation. We can see that God causes rain to fall on both the righteous and the unrighteous. And we can get to know and understand something about God. But ultimately, God also speaks to us in a very special and specific way, which is through his word. And there's a reason that he has done that. It it makes logical sense that God would speak this way to us because we can get to know him. We can praise God because God has not been silent. He has spoken to us in a written word. And even this manner in which God has revealed his word to us says much about his trustworthiness and his wisdom and how this word would even be preserved over the course of human history. God has revealed his word corporately and not just individualistically for the purpose that it can be accessible and understandable to all people, right? If it was only individual, it would be very subjective and others could claim to have special knowledge about God that someone else doesn't have or This person claims special knowledge of what God has spoken to them, and this person claims special knowledge of what God has spoken to them. But these two words contradict, and so how do we know what God has truly spoken to us? Well, it's because God has spoken corporately to us. He has given us this word preserved in the Bible so that all of us can have confidence that what he has spoken to us is true. I'm sure you've all heard stories of the boyfriend who goes up to his girlfriend and says, man, I just got a word from the Lord that we need to break up. He's just like, bro, all you're doing is shifting the blame off of yourself and using God as your cop-out. They're using this kind of special revelation from God to try to get out of this relationship that they've already messed up. God has graciously revealed his word to us in a corporate that is a, a way to all of us so that there would be inbuilt accountability to preserve what God has spoken and to guard against those subjective individual interpretations. And that's also even why we read the Bible together. That book I gave out earlier, one-to-one Bible reading, part of the purpose of that is that it's good to read the Bible in community with one another. And in fact, we're joining with the tradition of the church for two thousands of years when we do that. False prophets and cult leaders and Bad boyfriends are those that claim to have some sort of special revelation or special relationship with God that enables them to hear his voice, but Deuteronomy 4 and Revelation 22 both give us pretty strong warnings about adding or subtracting to God's own words. Another logical, though somewhat evidential, reason for trusting God's word is its unique unity. Have you ever considered that the Bible was written by more than 40 different authors over the course of more than a thousand years, across various geographical locations, within vastly diverse cultural contexts, and in two completely different languages. And yet the authors never contradict one another. It is one cohesive story of redemption. How is it that prophets in a completely different country can speak words about this coming Messiah, and then thousands of years later, those words be proved to be true. And those manuscripts that exist that testify to those things, most historians agree that those are real testimonies of history. And so the fact that all of those writings can kind of coalesce in this unified story, I mean, it's, it's utterly astounding. The, the only way that the scriptures could be as unified as they are, the only way that all the way from Genesis to Revelation, that we can have a, a unified story of what God has done in redeeming people back into relationship with him, I think speaks logically to the trustworthiness of God's word. I think if even just four or five of us in this room had a conversation about some sort of idea that we wanted to turn into a story, and I wrote on my own, And then you wrote on your own and then you try to turn that in or you try to try to make a story of that there's going to be discontinuity think about when you're tasked with doing a group project and you divide up the writing between different people and then you look at the final product and you're just like man (laughs) this dude's grammar is terrible this writing here has no connection to what came before it and yet the bible with 40 different authors written over the course of thousands of years in different places, different times, different languages is unified, is cohesive, is understandable. Applying to this applying this truth to the Gospels as we talked about earlier, I want to invite you to flip with me to Luke chapter 24 in your Bibles. Luke is the third Gospel in the New Testament. So if you reach the New Testament, starting with Matthew, you flip to the right, Matthew, Mark, and then you'll land at Luke. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 25, ending in verse 27. This is after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and he encounters two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him, and in conversation they lament the fact that Jesus isn't this kind of victorious military leader that's bringing deliverance to Israel. And so they say that to Jesus, not realizing that they're actually speaking to Jesus. Jesus. Then Jesus responds in verse 25, saying, And he said to them, that is, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, just as we consider, the Bible's like this puzzle that can seem a bit jumbled at first, but when we assemble the pieces, can you imagine being these two disciples, recognizing that these writings, these prophets that they studied and no doubt knew, Jesus is illuminating their minds to understand, no, this jumbled mess of the puzzle is actually fits together really well, and it's pointing to me. Can you imagine when that first clicked in their minds, just how wonderful that is? And really, I mean, that's the story of every Christian, recognizing that, oh, this word is true, and it testifies to this person, Jesus Christ. This type of unity could only happen with a divine author that is God. But there are also compelling historical reasons that we should trust the Bible. So let's move to that second point, historical. So first reason, historical. We can look to long history of God's people and we can ask, which books have they recognized as bearing the voice of their Lord? Which, which books of the Bible over the course of history has the church decided and said, yes, these are the true books of the Bible? Well, the history of the church for the last 2,000 years since Christ ascended is that these 66 books here in the Bible that we have, that we possess in our hands, what a gift that we can possess God's word in our hands, that these 66 books... Have been heard and affirmed by the church. You know, the New Testament writers and the Lord Jesus himself all extensively quote from the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. In fact, by the end of Christ's ministry, there was very little debate over the content of the Old Testament. First century historian Josephus wrote of the Old Testament For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured either to add to it or to remove from it or to alter a syllable of it. This is in the first century, a man writing about the Old Testament that everyone around them believed that, yes, this Old Testament scripture is true and we can agree on the books that are contained in it. And the church also quickly coalesced around the 27 books of the New Testament, a unity that has now lasted for some almost 2,000 years. His second historical reason that we can check the historical credentials of some of the books of the Bible. So I just want to give you one example. Let's consider the book of Acts. There's a scholar at the University of Oxford over in England across the pond who's a leading scholar on the book of Acts because of his vast geographical and archaeological knowledge of Asia Minor, which is where the book of Acts mostly takes place. In his early years as a scholar, this guy Ramsey regarded the book of Acts as a second-century production. He said it was full of inaccuracies and historical problems. And yet after he studied the book further, he tested the details of the book as he traveled through Asia Minor. He traced the Apostle Paul's journeys on his missionary journeys. He discovered that contrary to expectations, Luke's narrative, that is the author of the book of Acts, proved remarkably accurate. This is a a secular historian It says that his mind changed so decisively that he has become one of the most ardent defenders of Luke's historical reliability. In one of his books, he wrote, I set to look for the truth on the borderland where Greece and Asia met and found it there in the book of Acts. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny in the harshest treatment. Now, if we want to apply this principle again to the Gospels, well, what's the best way to prove the historical reliability of something that's been documented? If you're trying to get to know something about George Washington, for instance, the first president, would you rather read something by some historian on, I don't know, Fox News in 2021? Or would you rather read it from a historian back in George Washington's day? Certainly the latter. I mean, it just seems like a non-question, right? Well, the closer that something is written to the events that happen, the greater the chance of their reliability. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, were written within 50 to 60 years of Jesus' death. Another advantage of this time frame is the accountability regarding the reception of the Gospels. If you think about this, that when the Gospels were written and when they were being circulated around the churches, They were being circulated around people who had actually been eyewitness testimonies to these events. And so if Mark tried to squeeze in some sort of story that was a big fish story where he was really kind of elaborating on things, he was really kind of trying to juice up the details, people in the church would have been like, no, I was there. I saw that. That didn't actually happen. And so the fact that the Gospels were written during a time when eyewitness testimonies were still around, Attributes the fact that as they passed to tons of different churches, there was affirmation from these churches that, yes, these things did, in fact, take place. Let's move on to that third point, evidential. Are there factual or evidential reasons to believe that God's word is trustworthy? You know, a common objection lobbed at the reliability of the Bible on this front is that the book that we have or The books of the Bible that we have, they were just copies of copies of copies of copies of manuscripts that were passed down. And inevitably, these manuscripts were certainly altered by people over the course of time, right? They have to have what are called textual variants in them. But does this objection stand up? Well, historians traditionally want to know two things related to the transmission of ancient books and their reliability. They want to know the quantity of the number of manuscripts, and they want to know the date of those manuscripts. I see my constitutional scholar, Nick Sigalakis, had that answer ready. It's amazing. So the more quantities of a manuscript that we have, the better, because you can compare them. You can compare the extent of some of those textual variations. And so if you see a word that looks different from another word in a different manuscript, you can look at another manuscript and you can come to a better understanding of, whoa, what do these words actually say? What are, what are the authors actually trying to get at? Well, how many New Testament manuscripts do we have? Currently, this day, we possess 5,500 New Testament manuscripts. Compare this to the Odyssey by Homer. How many of you read the Odyssey in high school? Yeah, a good number of you. So we have 5,500 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Homer's Odyssey, there are 300 (laughs) manuscripts comparatively. As scholar and historian F.F. Bruce wrote on this point, the evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of the classical authors the authenticity of which no one questions. It's interesting that we have that many more, and yet it's the Bible that's constantly coming under attack. Is it any surprise that God's word, the purpose of which is to bring people to salvation through Jesus Christ, is undermined by the deceiver, the one who in Genesis 3 caused Adam and Eve, the first humans, to believe a lie? Is it any wonder that people constantly come for the Bible's trustworthiness? You know, I mentioned the date is also important, as we mentioned earlier. Logically, it makes sense that if you can get a manuscript that dates as closely as early as possible to the time that the original manuscript or document was composed, the better. It was not uncommon, though, for ancient literature's oldest works to be dated hundreds of years differently from the original. For instance... Tacitus, who was a Roman citizen, he wrote this book, Annals, around 100 A.D., but our earliest copy of it is from the 9th century, nearly 800 years later. By contrast, the New Testament has numerous manuscripts that date back to as early as the 2nd and 3rd century after Christ. Friends, we can have confidence that Christ's words are true, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, Christ's words, will not pass away. And again, to apply this to the Gospels. Pastor, professor, and author Dr. Mark Roberts notes that the number of Gospel manuscripts in existence is about 20 times larger than the average number of extant, that is, uh, manuscripts that are still in existence of comparable writings. With nearly 2,000 manuscripts of the Gospels in hand, it has become clear that to doubt the reliability of the Gospels is to really doubt the reliability of any ancient text ever found. Now, up to this point, we must admit that there are at least some compelling logical, historical, and evidential facts to support the trustworthiness of the Bible. And if you want to read more on some of those subjects or you still feel like, oh man, some of those things are lacking, again, I would point your attention to some of those resources that are listed on the back of your handout. There's more that you can read there. But I want to close with the most important and most compelling piece of evidence and that is the spiritual evidence if you're not a christian in this room if you're a skeptic if you're not sure what you believe i want you to listen closely at this one point i want you to just hang in with me for a moment i want you to recognize that scripture itself does testify to its own trustworthiness I also want you to know that the person of Jesus, God's word incarnate, also testifies to us. There's a reason that God, in his kindness, again, didn't leave us just with this word of revelation to us, but he actually revealed himself to us through his own son, Jesus. You know, in the ancient world, sometimes different flocks of Sheep would sleep in the same pen, even though they had different shepherds. They would do this so that they could, yeah, just have better protection. And so overnight, you'd have all these sheep, and inevitably, they would mingle with one another. So in the morning, how does one shepherd tell his sheep apart from the other sheep? Well, the shepherd would literally just call out, and by hearing his voice, his sheep would separate from the other sheep and follow him. The sheep recognized the voice of their shepherd. If you're a Christian, those words maybe sound familiar. Jesus said in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. How have most people across the world come to believe that the Bible is the word of God? It's not because they, I think, analyzed mounds and mounds of Analytical data or historical evidence. I think it's because they picked up God's word and they heard the voice of that good shepherd calling them. Unless you object that this only happens every once in a blue moon or to those who are at their wits' end, and yeah, I just, I'm at my wits' end, I might as well just pick up the Bible. Well, consider a couple of stories. In the second century, there was a pagan philosopher by the name of Tatian who similarly detested the Bible. What changed his mind? He wrote in his work addressed to the Greeks, I was led to put faith in these scriptures by the unpretending cast of the language, the inartificial character of the writers, the foreknowledge displayed of future events, and the excellent quality of the person of Jesus. You know, on a more personal example, I remember sitting across the table from a dear brother when I lived in North Carolina, and he was telling me, a. his story of how he came to believe that the scriptures were true. He recounted to me that he was actually living a super contented life. He had a good job. He was making good money. He had a kind of a a clear path before him about how to progress in his career. He said he had no lack of finding females to spend time with. He said he felt that he was living the good life. There was nothing that he felt that he needed otherwise. And yet someone at his workspace just kind of kept peppering him and said, Hey, you should check out the Bible. You feel pretty confident about yourself. Well, what do you have to lose? You might as well pick up this Bible. So he picked up a Bible and opened up to the Gospel of John. And he said, I think that this is probably just going to be full of a bunch of crazy mythology. And so I can just breeze through it, set it down, don't have to worry about it. You can probably tell where this story is going. As he started to read, he was like those sheep. He started to hear the voice of the shepherd. He started to realize that he had a condition that all the success, all the money, all the contentment that he had couldn't provide for. He realized that there was a a deeper need that kind of dug deep into his soul. And he was really compelled by this person of Jesus, the person who, as we remember from the Gospel of John in chapter 20, says that these things were written, these things about Christ were written so that you may believe. He read that and realized, this requires my belief. I can't be neutral about these things. And because this word seems true, because this person Jesus is compelling, because I recognize that I actually do have need when I thought that I didn't. I want to turn to this Jesus. God has given us his word so that we may believe. And what's that second phrase that John says there in John chapter 20? It says that God has given us his word so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Son of God, and that by believing you may have... Is anybody there? John 20? Life Life through His name. So these scriptures reveal who Jesus is, the Messiah, that is, the one who saves. And they reveal that in Him we have life. Ultimately, we can trust God's word because... That word incarnate, the Jesus Christ, has become as we are. He became as human on this earth. And why did this Jesus come? Well, he came because each of us has a peculiar problem. You see, in the beginning, God created all things, and he created these human beings. But after they were deceived, the first humans, Adam and Eve believed this lie that, you know what, I think I am better off on my own. I think I do want to choose to be autonomous. I think I do want to choose to be like God. I want to be equal with God. I want to have knowledge like God does. I I recognize I'm the creation, but actually I want to be the creator. This problem is all around us. You don't have to look for it. We just have to look at what owns us, what demands that we die for it, If we live for our work or for our school or for our reputation, ultimately what happens? We become enslaved to it. It demands our all. If we give ourselves over to our work, we ultimately can at times sacrifice our friendships, our relationships with others, sacrifice other things around us on the altar of that work. If we live for things of this world, we just end up with, more things that we have to give away or take to Goodwill or with a big mortgage or more credit card debt. If we live for success, our families will pay the price. We always end up dying for the things that own us. And there's only one solution to that problem. The Bible, this, this word of God that is trustworthy, it provides one solution and it's through a person that actually died for us. This person Jesus Christ, the one that John says that through whom we can have life. No matter what you look to in this life, it is going to enslave you. There's never going to be enough. You're always going to want more. You're always going to want to just be autonomous. You're never going to want any authority over you. Even as we sang in that song, Jesus strong and kind. This Savior Jesus came to this earth not to cause you to have to believe any more rules but instead for him to obey all the rules to be perfectly obedient to live a righteous life so that in our sin in our disobedience if we simply look to him whose death on the cross satisfied god's punishment against our disobedience the bible says that if we believe that and if we cast our faith We cast the the object of our confidence that we believe that promise is true, that God will give life from that. The scriptures say that we can be saved. The scriptures say that our deepest need can be met. And there is good reason to have confidence in that promise. There's good reason to believe that Jesus is the one who saves us. There's good reason to believe that You don't have to be your own savior and in fact you can't be all of the works that you do they're never gonna be enough there's only one whose work is sufficient and if you haven't believed in that Jesus I encourage you God is patient but his patience doesn't last forever the Bible teaches that God must punish sin if he's going to be just. God has to satisfy his own righteous requirements. It's a somber message. It's a message that because we've rejected him, because each of us possess a character that is contrary to God, that if he's going to be just, he has to punish that. But again, Friends, the good news is, is that Jesus bore that punishment. All you have to do is to cast your gaze upon him. And you don't need a priest to do that. You don't have to pray some sort of mystical prayer that has some sort of formula. You just simply have to look to God and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Help me trust you. I have unbelief, but help my unbelief, God. And if any of you ever want to talk more about that, I would love to have a conversation with you. Please don't neglect to make sure that you are, in fact, right with God. And that this word, that we have ample reason to trust, can give you the confidence of knowing God. So I encourage you, take and read, even as that friend in North Carolina did, to discover who Jesus is and of his care for you. Let's pray.